You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 15. As you're doing so, I want to kind of remind you of where we've been over the last couple of weeks in Revelation. We had discussed in Revelation chapter 13 a lot about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and the dangers of that deception that is to come in the future. We saw in Revelation chapter 14 that despite all the the fears related to the Antichrist and deception, that there's a, a mass amount of people that are victorious over the Antichrist, right? And so we saw that that group, that 144,000 at the beginning of Revelation chapter 14. Then we saw in Revelation chapter 14 the, the warnings of the three angels with the gospel going forth and um, the potential repercussions that come from those who do not uh, respond to the gospel. And then last or two weeks ago, we saw um, the great harvest that is to come that Jesus is coming back, and in the midst of his coming back, he will harvest, he will separate the wheat from the tares, he will pour out his wrath um, upon those who have uh, failed to repent and failed to respond to the gospel. And so that leads us into Revelation chapter 15. I want to read for us the chapter to uh, springboard us into our discussion this morning. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold, or harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Our summary sentence for today, as we see this worship service taking place by uh, by the seashore of this sea um, that's mingled with fire, as we see the, the heavens opened and the bowls being passed out for what we will come to understand in Revelation 16 as the bold judgments. Our summary sentence to help us understand this chapter, God is revealed beyond sufficient reason for mankind to fear him and give him glory in order to avoid his just wrath. God has revealed not just sufficient reason, but beyond sufficient reason for mankind to fear him and to give him glory in order to avoid his just wrath. For our kids, God has given us countless reasons to worship him. So what we're going to see in this chapter this this morning is the idea here of, of God's greatness and his glory coupled with the fact that he's bringing wrath upon those who who do not respond to his revelation of greatness and glory. We're going to see that that's appropriate and that it's right, that God has revealed sufficient reason for mankind to fear him and to glory in him. And by doing so, we avoid his just wrath. For our kids, I want them to walk away seeing that there are so many reasons in Scripture, so many reasons contained here in just chapter 15 of Revelation that we have to worship God. As a means of introduction this morning, this chapter opens with a scene of safety for God's people prior to the discussion of the bold judgments. I think that's important. Uh, Once again, we see, just like in Revelation chapter 14, where there's this, this great deception and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast, we see God's people are safe, right? We see them standing on Mount Zion. Here, before we get into these bold judgments, and they're going to they're gonna resemble and be very, very uh, similar to what we see in Egypt with the plagues of Egypt. We've talked before about how there's a lot of similarities um, and, and parallels with the Exodus and uh, what took place in Egypt with the book of Revelation. We're going to see that again in the bold judgments. But before we even get into the bold judgments, we see God's people safe in his arms next to this seashore. I think that's important for us to note. Um, 
Revelation 14, 1 through 5 is real similar to Revelation 15, 1 through 4. I referenced it already, but if we go back to chapter 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. Right, So there's this, this worship service, this, this group of people who have been preserved and saved, and, and it sounds like harps, right? And they're singing a song, and that's the picture we get in Revelation chapter 15, right? A, a sign in heaven, a great and amazing sign. Seven angels, seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a glass of fire, or a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. This is the same group of people. We should see this as the same group of people, that same 144,000 who are standing with God, safely protected from the Antichrist, from Satan, and from his forces. There's a reference here to the Song of Moses, and um, while it's not a direct quotation from really anywhere in, in the Old Testament, there are two songs that are considered songs of Moses. One is found in Exodus chapter 15, which we read a portion of that during our, our singing this morning, the other being found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. There is a little bit of parallel in uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, with what we've read here in Revelation. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Kind of that rhetorical question, is there anybody like you? With the answer obviously being no, there's, there's no creature, there's no being, there's nothing like God in the ways that God has revealed himself to his creation. And we see that same theme here in Revelation chapter 15. And so while there's not a direct quotation necessarily from either one of these passages, the themes still run true. That in lieu of God's deliverance, in light of his deliverance from, from the enemy, there is much rejoicing and celebration the context of Exodus chapter 15, they've just come through the Red Sea, right? And so as Daniel read this morning, you saw some of the, the, the remembrance, some of the pictures of, of what God did to save them from Pharaoh and his army, right? And so on the other side of the sea, they are praising God. They are worshiping God for his deliverance. You fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 32, and you see what ultimately is Moses challenging the people before he dies to remember everything that he's, he's declared to them from God about his law and about the things that they are required to do. If you look uh, in the chapter prior to chapter 32, in, verse, in chapter 31, verse 24, it says, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. But even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands, right? So, so Moses has written this down, and now he tells them, take this book, put it by the Ark of the Covenant, right? You're going to stick it in the tabernacle, and it's going to be a sign to you, a testimony to you, a witness to you of what God has commanded. And he's concerned about them forgetting to do this, right? And so he begins to, to echo this song to these people as a remembrance of all the things that God has done, says in chapter 32, verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work, is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? 
Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. It goes on to describe God's faithfulness to his people and how he's taken care of them and protected them. You skip down to the the end of the chapter, Verse 44, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that you may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Man, Moses is so concerned. He's like, he's like, don't, don't stop seeing how great God is. Don't forget how great God is because if you forget, if you forget to see him for who he is, your heart is gonna wander away. Your heart is gonna wander away. Man, as I was studying this, I was thinking about, um, there, there's the, the movie called um, Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts. Anybody ever seen that movie? There's, there's a scene there where, so, so Richard Gere's character is pursuing Julia Roberts' character and you find out that, that he's been divorced before. And man, the movie just sets him up as this really great guy and they're coming together and it, and it kind of sparks your mind as to, man, how did that other marriage not work out? Like this guy's great, like he gets it. And he has a conversation with his previous wife and, and he asks her, he's like, what happened between us? Like, well, why, did, why did this not work between us? And she makes a comment to him. She says, you stopped seeing me. Like you stopped, you stopped seeing me and appreciating me. Now, obviously that's not biblical reasons for divorce, right? But, but the implication there is that he who, who seemingly gets it with this other woman, man, he stopped seeing it with his wife, with his first wife. Like he stopped realizing the, the, the precious gift that, we, that she was to him. And that's typically true in most affairs, right? Like, like one of the spouses stops seeing how great the other spouse is because you've, you've seen it countless times where you hear about a marriage that's breaking up and you're like, man, what is he thinking or what is she thinking? Like, like the spouse is great. Like, what, what, what is he thinking? What is she thinking? Like, like I'm experiencing that with, with somebody at school. It's like, man, what is he thinking? Like, the only answer is that he stops seeing his wife for who she is. And now his heart has turned from her and has attached itself to another woman. Moses is concerned because they're about to go into the promised land. He says, if you stop seeing how great God is, your heart's going to turn to other gods. Man, he predicts it. He knows this is going to be a challenge. He says, I've written it all down for you. I've put it into the, to the song format because that's typically how we remember a lot of things, right? That's a teaching tool in school to, to take hard truths that, that students need to remember, combine it with song, and it makes it far more memorable. Moses says, I've written it down. Now let me give it to you in song format to help you remember. We're going to put it on display in the tabernacle as a, as a testimony, as a witness, so that you do not forget what God desires for you. We see that here in, in Revelation chapter 15. God's greatness is put on display. He's communicating the reasons that we should fear him and glory in him over all other things that this world has to offer. Don't forget how great he is. We see also here the, the, the introduction to the bold judgments that are coming. These bold judgments that are described are ultimately the wine of God's wrath that we find in Revelation chapter 14. This is the, the wine of God's wrath that these people will have poured out and will have to drink. We see seven bold judgments or seven angels and seven plagues that are mentioned. Plagues and, and the bold judgments kind of being used interchangeably. They take place throughout the last days of human history and they intensify leading up to Jesus's return. What we find throughout scripture is that God's plagues are meant to generate repentance before final judgment comes. That's the purpose of plagues. And so as God rolls out these bold judgments, there's still the implication that repentance is what's desired. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, by, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
Man, God is described as a God of patience, one who is slow to anger. Man, we've seen a God who is very slow to bring final judgment in the book of Revelation, right? Continued opportunities for repentance that have, that have been offered. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21, it wasn't just Egypt that was threatened with plagues. Israel, too, uh, and I think Scripture kind of shows that Israel is no better than Egypt, right? That, that God chooses to bestow his love upon Israel, not because of anything special about them, more about God being special and choosing to do so. It says, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. You skip down to verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Skip all the way down to verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul um, abhorred my statutes. Man, even as God is warning Israel, hey, if you forget me, if you spurn me, then I'm going to bring discipline into your life, right? Like I'm going I'm to walk contrary to you. Kind of goes back to that idea of supportive presence. God says, I'm not going to support you in your sin. I'm not going to let that be tolerated. Right? He says, I'll bring, I'll bring judgment upon you. I'll bring it sevenfold, which kind of parallels what we see in Revelation chapter 15, right? But what's coupled in there is that, man, if at any point you stop, if at any point you repent, if at any point you turn from your iniquity, man, I'll, re- I'll relent of what I'm doing, right? Like these things are meant to draw you to repentance. And, and the moment that that works, the moment that that's effective, man, that stops the plagues. That stops the discipline. I think that runs true in Revelation chapter 15. These things are meant to draw the people to repentance. Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, 28, 59 says, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of the law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you are as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God. As the Lord took delight in doing good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. God uses these things to bring judgment, but he uses them in such a way where repentance is possible. Going back to Revelation chapter 15, there's a rhetorical question that's posed here that I think should draw our attention back to Revelation chapter 14, where the, uh, the angel is flying overhead with the eternal gospel. And what, what does he say? He says, he said with a loud voice in verse seven of chapter 14, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. In Revelation chapter 15, verse four, it says, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? So in chapter 14, the message is fear God and give him glory or else, right? Or else judgment comes or else the great harvest comes and you're on the wrong side of that. What we find in Revelation chapter 15, verse four, I mean, there's too much evidence not to fear him. There's, there's too much reason, too much evidence given to us to not fear him, to not glorify him. Man, it's been given to us. It's been revealed to us. How can we not respond in the way the angel calls us to with the gospel? Too much evidence not to fear him. All right, so springboarding off of that with fearing God and glorifying God, let's talk specifically about why we should do so. So in your notes, number one, fear and glorify the God who preserves his people. 
fear and glorify the God who preserves his people. For our kids, he takes care of his people. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. We fear and glorify the God who preserves his people. Number one, God carries his people through the trials. As I was looking at this and and kind of picturing this, I'm picturing these people on the other side of this sea. And so immediately I'm thinking, Man, I think, I think that the picture is they've gone through this, right? They've gone through this. And what we find in 1 Peter chapter 1 is how God sustains us through the fire, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, that you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we're described as being believers who go through trials as though we're going through fire and God sustains us through that test. It shows the genuineness of our faith for what purpose? It results, it results in the glory of God, right? Man, that's what we see in Revelation chapter 15. We see a group of people who have not yielded to the Antichrist. They've not uh, given in to the threat of death. They've not taken the mark of the beast. Man, they've, they've traveled through that fire and they've won the victory. And what are they doing? Man, they're, they're giving glory to God, right? Like they are worshiping God after coming through that fire. So I think we can certainly say we worship God, we glorify God, we fear him because he takes care of his people. He preserves his people. He carries his people through trials. He sustains them through those things. He preserves our faith so that we don't wander away from the faith. I think the picture here is that, they've, that, that we, as believers, we've passed through the fiery Red Sea and we've won. Because this should, this should conjure up images of Exodus where, where they've come through that sea and they're standing on the other side and what they turn around and look and, and God's enemies don't make it through, right? Man, the, 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 the walls of that sea come towering down upon them and then they, they kill the enemies of Israel, right? They, they, they destroy the enemies of Israel. And that's the picture I think we see in Revelation chapter 15 is that God carried his people through these trials and sustained them. Number two, God guards his people through temptations. Not only does God take care of us through persecutions where things are difficult for us that would cause our faith to, to maybe wander, to cause our faith to be weakened, God guards his people through temptations. They resist the beast, his image, and his number. And God protects us the sea here throughout Revelation is viewed as a place of cosmic evil. Uh, we've seen beasts coming out of the sea. Daniel chapter 7 is another place where the sea is a picture of cosmic evil. But what we see here is God calming the chaotic waters of the sea by his sovereignty because this sea has been turned to glass. It's been, it's been turned to glass. Man, I, I love to fish, and, and I love being on the lake when the lake is like glass. I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful scene. I love to fish in that setting. Your boat's not getting blown around everywhere. You can usually see into the water and kind of see where the fish are. It makes for a great experience when the water is like that. I also love to saltwater fish, and I've never seen the sea like that, right? There's, there's days where there's hardly any waves, and those are appreciated when you're fishing. But I've never seen the ocean like I've seen a lake before, right? I've never seen that. Here we have a picture of a sea that's been turned to glass. It's completely calmed by God's sovereignty. And God has taken his people and they've not compromised their faith in the midst of pressure and persecution. They've resisted alliances with the beast. Back in Revelation chapter 12, where where Satan spews the, the flooding waters of deception, God has repelled those. Remember the earth opened up and swallowed those up so that it did not affect his people. They've overcome. They've been protected from the second death. They've been um, preserved to eat the hidden manna. They've been clothed in white garments. They serve as pillars. All these promises given to those seven churches, this is the group that receives those promises. This is the group that has, has endured to the end. We fear God. We glorify God because he preserves his people. He's saving that sea now for a piece of judgment for those that have been tormenting his people, just like he did with the Egyptians. 
All right, number two, fear and glorify God who is sovereign over all. We fear and glorify God who is sovereign over all. For our kids, he controls everything. He controls everything. As they stand on the side of the seashore, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. His works are great and amazing. It's the description given to us here. If we jump back into the Old Testament, we see those same descriptions in Psalm chapter 111. Praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. In Jeremiah chapter 10, we also see this same idea. It says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammers and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have, uh, they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. His works are great and amazing. One commentator made the point that I thought was was such a good reminder to me that all of God's works are great and marvelous, not just some of them all of them are great and marvelous, right? Like we can talk about how great that day was when, when the Red Sea was parted and the Egyptians came through and God delivered them. That was a great and marvelous day. It's a great and marvelous day when we hear about Topi's dad having spiritual conversations with him in answer to prayer as well. That's no less great or no less marvelous. I mean, that's, that's a great and amazing thing that God has done. I think too oftentimes we, we categorize them and we forget every single day God's doing great and marvelous things around us, right? The enemy distracts us and and causes us not to see those things as great and marvelous. But God's deeds, God's works are amazing, great, and marvelous as described here in Revelation chapter 15. Not just some of them, all of them should be categorized that way. Number two, or his works are great and amazing. Number two, his authority extends to all nations. His His authority extends to all nations. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. He controls the history of his people because he rules the nations who they come into contact with. He possesses the power to carry out whatever he wants to do. His authority extends to all nations. Right? We don't just have a great king who's over us. There's been some great kings in Israel, right? King David, King Solomon. There's been some really good kings who had a lot of power and a lot of authority, but they weren't kings over other nations, right? There were other kings that ruled other nations. The description of Jesus is that he is the king of all nations. And so when we talk about his sovereignty, his control, his power, how he takes care of his people, the reason that he can take care of his people is because he, he controls all other people, right? He controls all other nations. Anybody we come in contact with, any enemy that we come in contact with answers to Jesus as well. His authority extends to all nations. But number three, his influence affects all nations as well. 
His influence affects all nations. People from all nations will realize the worthiness of God. That's what we're told. All nations will come and worship you, Revelation tells us here. All nations are going to be impacted by the glory of God. We've seen that in other parts of Revelation, right? People from every tribe, nation, and tongue coming and giving due worship to God. Psalm chapter 86 in the Old Testament points to this as well. Psalm chapter 86, verse 9 and 10. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Why? For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. Why? For my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Right? The Old Testament points to this. God promised it to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. This is the fulfillment of the gospel. This is people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping God. It's promised once again, and we see the fulfillment of it in Revelation chapter 15. We fear and glorify God. Why? Because he preserves his people. We fear and glorify God. Why? Because he's sovereign over all. Not just us as believers, but over all nations. And he affects all nations. But number three, we fear and glorify the God who is just, true, and righteous. For our kids, he's fair and good. We fear and glorify the God who is just, true, and righteous. Just and true are your ways. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Number one, we worship because of the justice of God. We worship because of the justice of God. Going back to that passage that we read regarding the um, song of Moses, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the earth, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Why? Because his work is perfect and his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, he's just and he's upright. We see this in Revelation chapter 19, which we'll get to. And there's some tension here because we're talking about, we're talking about worshiping God in his wrath. Right? Like we're talking about worshiping God because of his justice and finding a way to actually worship God because he brings judgment upon unbelievers. And that's hard for us to reconcile right now in our finite minds because right now we're very sympathetic to the lost, right? We're very, when we should be, we're very sympathetic to those who are without Jesus. Um, there's a great sermon by David Platt. I think there's another great sermon by R.C. Sproul that talks about how there will come a day where we can worship God in the midst of his wrath. We see this taking place in Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why are they worshiping? For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. Why? Because the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. God's wrath is being poured out and God's people are finding means and reasons to worship him in the midst of that. Why? Because he's a just God. It's fair, it's right, it's good, the ways that he acts. The final judgment comes from the presence of God. Jumping ahead a little bit in Revelation chapter 15 to that scene where the bowls are starting to flow from his presence. It says, After this I looked, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, and they're clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures who we've already talked about in Revelation gave the seven angels their bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And then we see God's presence exude there where there's smoke And no one can come near him until his power and his wrath has been emptied. This final judgment comes from his presence. I think that's very clear in the way that John writes. He wants us to see that it flows from God. 
It comes from God. But I also think it's important, and why I want you to discuss this this morning in our groups, his judgment is based on the testimony of his law. We read about this, right? Where did Moses say he was going to put this? He said, we're going to take the book of the law and we're going to put it next to the Ark of the Covenant. And where are those two things going to be at? I mean, they're going to be in the tabernacle, right? As they wander around in the promised land, they have this temporary temple, right, that's set up. And so they would, they would put it up and they would tear it down and that's where God's glory would come and dwell. And so God led them by a cloud of smoke during the day, by, by a pillar of fire at night. That's where he dwelt with them, right? And, and we've already seen allusions to the temple, but I think probably the reason that it's described as the tabernacle here because the, the, the people of God at this point in time, when it was written, and they didn't know where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? Like that, like that stuff wasn't in the temple anymore. That stuff had been lost. They didn't know where it was. So it's almost as though God in his sovereignty and how he reveals it to John takes the, the readers who would have understood this is about the tabernacle, taking them back to a point in time in history where they would have known that the Ark of the Covenant was in there, that the, the law of God was in there. And it's on that basis, it's on that basis that God's judgment flows. Why? Because we've rebelled against his law. We've rebelled against his law. In Exodus chapter 25, and this is so important for us to understand, how can God be just, especially when we get posed questions like, how can God judge somebody who's never heard the name of Jesus before? Right? Like the, the, the hypothetical guy in Africa who, who desperately wants to be a Christian, but nobody ever makes it to him to tell him about Jesus, right? Like that guy doesn't exist. That God doesn't exist. Every time in scripture, God is working on somebody's heart and they want to know more about Jesus, God sends a missionary to them. Man, it just happens time and time again, right? There's not a guy in Africa who wants to follow Jesus and has never heard of Jesus, right? There's, there's people in Africa who have never heard of Jesus who want to love themselves and worship themselves, right? Like there are plenty of people around the world who have never heard of Jesus but have no concerns about knowing about Jesus. They're, they're born into sin and they're dead in their sins. Exodus chapter 25, verse, verse 16 Actually, we're not going to take the time to read that. You can look at that later. That's where we know that God's law is placed there. Okay, so we don't need to read that. I've already, hopefully you believe me that that's where it is, right? Deuteronomy chapter 28, I think that's another passage that tells us that. Uh, Verse 58. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. Okay, so we know. God is communicating the Old Testament. You don't obey my law, that's when judgment comes. That's when punishment comes. I'd encourage you to go and read Romans chapter two. Romans chapter two talks about the standard of law that God uses to judge people, right? Those that have the law, man, God uses the law to judge them. Those who don't have the law, the guy who doesn't have the Bible in his own language, he still gets judged by the law. Not the 10 commandment law, but the law that's written on his heart, Right? We, we, we went through Romans as a church, chapter by chapter, and we talked extensively in chapter two how God uses the law to judge people, and it's right for him to judge people by that law. And he doesn't hold people accountable to what they don't have yet or what they never gained, right? He doesn't expect everybody to, to know the intricacies of his law when they never got the Bible in their language, but he does expect everybody to live by a standard that's written on their heart, and every human being fails to live by that standard. His, his judgments are fair and just and right because he uses a law that is fair to bring that judgment. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 all talk about God's justice and why it's fair, right? To the point in Romans chapter 3 where it says, every mouth is shut, every mouth is stopped, every human being is found guilty before God. Revelation chapter 16 in the midst of this judgment, reminds us that God's judgment is fair and it's right and it's just. Revelation 16, verse five. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Man, in the end, when Jesus comes back and dishes out judgment and wrath, there's no question that it's right. 
And it may not feel right right now to us. But at that point in time, there will be an ability to worship God even as he's being wrathful because it will be very clear that he is just and right and true and righteous. We've already seen he's a, he's a God who's slow to anger, right? Those trusting in Christ will have their penalty of sin paid for by his blood. We see this throughout Revelation already, and that's what the warning of the angel is. Fear God, give him glory, and you can be spared from this, right? Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Jumping all the way back to the beginning of our study. Uh, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us. And what has he done? He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Man, the only reason the 144,000, the only reason that the, the ones who are standing at this seashore can worship and glorify God is because of Jesus and what he's accomplished. They've been spared from God's wrath. We have been spared from God's wrath because of what Jesus has done. He has come to pay the penalty of our sin. And remember, Jesus said, if there's any other way, don't make me drink this cup, right? I don't want to have to drink the cup of your wrath. It's the same cup that we're talking about being poured out on people at the end of time. Right? They've rejected the, the one who came and drank the cup already. They said, no, thank you to that. And they said, I'll, we'll drink it ourselves. Right? God's judgments are fair and right and just. Those rejecting the divine provision of salvation will bear their own penalty for sin. Whenever wicked man, mankind fails to repent in response to God's partial judgment, final wrath should be expected. Again, lest we forget the plagues are meant to draw people to repentance, and oftentimes they fail to do so. Revelation 9.21, they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Revelation 16, that same passage where God's being praised and honored for his just judgments. Verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The judgment is right. The judgment is fair. The judgment is just. Oftentimes we fail to, to see how e eternal punishment can be fair. One commentator said God's wrath is just because the measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. God's wrath is just because the measure of sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. I remember, and I've shared this story before, this, uh, this kid in elementary school, his name was Peter, um, and, and Peter liked to do mean things to animals, Right? Um, but they were the type of animals that you could easily dismiss. And, and Peter used to take grasshoppers and, and would, would take their legs and break their legs off and sit them in, in ant piles and watch the ants come and eat the grasshopper, and the grasshopper was completely helpless to do anything to get away. Right, you hear that, and you're like, man, what's wrong with Peter? Like, like, like Peter's disturbed. Like, Peter, Peter needs to not do that, right? But, but you don't call the police on Peter, right? Like, you, you say, Peter, don't do that again. Like, um, we're going to be watching you and monitoring you, but like, don't do that again, Peter. There's other animals that if Peter did that too, it would cause greater concern, right? Like, like if Peter had a, had a weird view about puppies, well now, like, like that's not a grasshopper, Peter. Like, like that's different. And, and the, the seriousness of it escalates based on the value of the animal, right? If Peter had some type of weird perspective about babies, right? Now the seriousness really escalates, right? Like now the police are, if the police weren't involved with the puppies, the police are definitely involved now with the babies. Right? Like this is not okay. Why? Because the value we place on babies, the value that we place on children, right? The offense is the same really, right? Like all we're doing is playing in ant piles. But the level of the being 
that we're offending has escalated, right? We've gone from grasshoppers to babies, and the severity of how we view that has increased greatly. The difference between a baby and a grasshopper is huge. It cannot be compared to the difference between a baby and an almighty God who we sin against, right? The, the severity of our sin, we, we can't even measure it when we talk about a sin against a holy God, right? Like we can, we can talk about the difference between a grasshopper and a baby. It's hard for us to even comprehend how vast of a difference there is when we sin against a, another human being versus sinning against a holy God. His wrath is right because the measure of sin, how serious the sin is, is determined by the magnitude of the one who sinned against. The severity of the punishment reflects how valuable the person is, is that's been sinned against. Right? We, would, we would expect there to be much greater punishment for Peter if we're talking about babies versus grasshoppers right? because of the value of the individual being. Man, we should expect the punishment that comes from offending and sinning against the holy God to be great, to be infinite, to be eternal, right? It's hard for our minds to wrap around how could God be fair and just to punish somebody for eternity? Man, to not punish somebody for eternity downplays the glory of God. It's saying, oh, well, God's not glorious enough for someone to be punished for eternity for offending him. You see that? Like the value of the being determines how long the punishment lasts or how severe the punishment is. God is fair and right and just because he's revealed himself as being all glorious, as being an amazing God. We worship him because of his justice. Number two, we worship because of the purity of God. Man, I love what one commentator had to say. He said, his acts are not just demonstrations of raw power. When we think about God and the things that he does and his great and amazing works, it's not just about raw power that God has. What's told to us here in Revelation chapter 15, his acts are not just raw power demonstrations. They are moral expressions of his, of his character. Think about that. It's not just God. Remember in Revelation 13 where the Antichrist is just doing like magical type things to, to create a crowd and to create attention. God's not just putting on raw power on display, right? It's not just like, look how powerful I am. I can split the Red Sea and look how powerful I am. I can multiply fish and bread. It's not just about raw power. It's about a moral character that's being demonstrated in his acts. He, we worship the purity of God. It says your righteous acts have been revealed. Your good acts, your holy acts have been revealed. We fear and glorify the God who is just, true, and righteous. Number four, we fear and glorify the God who is holy. For our kids, he is holy. We fear and glorify the God who is holy. He deserves our worship because he is uniquely different. Sometimes when we think of holiness, we limit that term to simply mean that he's without sin, that he's, that he's pure, he's undefiled. That's very true, right? God's without sin. He's not, he's not, there's, no, there's no evil element to him. But his holiness is not just confined to his lack of sin. His holiness means that he's completely set apart and different, meaning there's nothing like God, right? Like Satan's not the equal counterpart to God just on the evil side of things. Satan's a created being. God stands alone as the uncreated being, and no one is like him. Psalm chapter 86, verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. He deserves our worship because he's uniquely different, and we worship him because of that. Number two, he demands our worship because he has revealed his uniqueness. And that's the kicker in Revelation chapter 15. It's not just that a holy God issues out judgment because people have failed to glorify him and failed to fear him. It's because he has revealed himself in such a way that that should be the response and people have failed to do it. He hasn't kept himself hidden. Right? The, the, the question there in verse four is, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Your righteous acts have been revealed. How could anybody not fear you? How could anybody not glorify your name? 
He hasn't kept himself hidden. Psalm chapter 98, he's revealed himself to us. Psalm chapter 98. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness, not just in Israel. Right? Because sometimes we think, well, well, yeah, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself, but he revealed himself uniquely to Israel. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Right? Israel was set up to be this, this thing that the nations were to be drawn to, to come and see God's greatness, come and see God's goodness. That's what happened when Solomon rose to power, right? You had people coming to see the grandeur of Solomon and how God had blessed him. It was a testimony to the greatness of God. God revealed himself, his righteousness in the sight of all nations. That demands that we worship him because he's not kept himself hidden. Kind of wrapping up, I wanted to discuss two, two points here. Why is, it our, why is our failure to worship him so tragic? Um, it's because the, the things that, that are so true about God are things that we want so desperately. And God has revealed these things to be true about him and, and we seek to find it other ways. In the first way, one, we think we can control things when he has demonstrated he does control things, right? Like too oftentimes we try to seize control of things in our life Um, we don't worship the God who's in control of everything. We think in some perverted way that we can control our life, that we can shape how things turn out for us. And yet what we have is a God who is, who has demonstrated and revealed that he's in control of everything, right? It's tragic that we would think that we can control anything in our life when he's demonstrated his sovereignty to control everything. Number two, we do good to others. At least I do. I do good to others more often than I want to admit in order to receive glory from myself, right? Like even in my best attempts to do good things to other people, oftentimes it's still tainted in some way where I hope to have selfish glory from it. What does God do? He does things for his glory, which is good for others, right? That's the difference is that God is capable of achieving his glory and the good of others at the same time. We, we can't do that right? Like we can't get glory for ourselves, and that be good for other people typically. Like we pervert that with our selfishness and our, our, our desire, our, our prideful desire to have glory drawn to us, oftentimes at the expense of other people, right? Like our head football coach at Trinity is always challenging our boys. Are you willing to, do you desire a state championship so much that you don't care if you get the glory for it or not? Are you willing to do your job and nobody recognize it and it results in a state championship. I was watching the re- this basketball time right now and basketball state championships happening all around the state. And I watched this buzzer beater clip of, of this basketball game where uh, I forget which school it was in Georgia that won the state championship. And the ball's inbound and this guy's like dribbling and he's gonna take the last shot. And his buddy is standing over on the other side and he's like, give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. Like he wants it, he wants to take the shot, right? This guy is covered, he throws up this crazy shot and makes it and wins the game. Now, I don't know if this is exactly what was happening, but this is the, the, the image that was given to me. This guy's begging for the ball, doesn't get it. His buddy makes the shot. Everybody on the bench erupts and comes running to him. And you just see the guy standing there after the shot went in, almost disappointed like, I wanted to make it. Like, you, you just won a state championship. Like there's not, there's not anybody else in the state that can say that right now, but your team. And it looked to me like he was more concerned that the guy did not pass the ball to him. And irregardless about winning a state championship or not, it's like, man, I didn't get, I'm not going to get the glory for this. You're going to get it because you made the shot, right? Like that's, that's a great picture of us. A lot of times we want the glory, even if it means that, that others like to the detriment of others, like it's almost like he would have rather made the, missed the shot or he'd rather his buddy miss the shot than win a state championship if it didn't mean he got the glory for it, right? Too oftentimes, we, we act that way. But here, God has revealed himself as, a one, as one who does things for his glory, but by doing so, it's for the good of his people, right? Why is God worthy of our worship? Three things, and we'll close. 
because he is different than us, he does great things, and he does right things. We've, we've, we've said that all along today. But going back to what we just said about the tragedy of not worshiping, number two, because we want to control things for our good, and he does that better than we can imagine. Right? Like, why do we want to be in control of things in our life? Because we want things to go good for us. Right? Like, that's the essence of why we want to control things. Why do I want to be in control? Because I think I can control things and make things good for me. What's the promise that God gives us? That he works all things for the good of his children. So we spend so much time trying to seize control in our life of things so that we can do good to ourselves. where God said, hey, I'm the one who controls everything and I have every intention of controlling it for your good. We worship God because he does control everything and he does it for our good. We also worship God because we want to repay injustice done to us and he does that better than we can imagine as well. Right? We, we would love for people to get paid back oftentimes or at least to get what they deserve when they do wrong things to us. And God does that better than we can imagine. He's a fair God and a just God. And we've seen time and time again in Revelation that when Jesus comes back, he makes all things right. He makes all things right. Even if, and here's where we have to funnel that through the gospel, even if it means judging Jesus, judging Jesus on the cross as a means of justice to what somebody's done to you, right? Because your greatest enemy, who is at one point in darkness and heading for the judgment of God, may escape on their deathbed, right? And there should be no feelings that, hey, justice wasn't served to that guy, right? The thief on the cross, right? He may have had the guys that he stole from standing at the bottom of his cross saying, you're getting what you deserve, buddy. You're a thief, and then they hear Jesus say, you're going to paradise with me. And it's like, what? Like, what do you mean he's going to paradise with you? It's because Jesus doesn't deserve to be up there, right? Like he's drinking the wrath of God on behalf of the thief on the cross. He's just, and he pays back sin, whether it's through an eternal punishment for the human being or whether it's that punishment on the cross through an infinite being who was holy in Jesus, right? He does it better than we can imagine. Application points. Number one, trust yourself to the one who judges justly. Man, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking in C group about First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but it continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Man, I have such a temptation to try to bring justice into a situation because I feel like I was treated wrongly. This week we had, to, we had to call in an investigator because of a situation at school and he had to interview some people and he had to call some parents and I was sitting in with him. He had a recorder out. We're on speakerphone. None of the parents know that I'm there. And in the midst of this discussion, this one parent decides to tell him, like she literally says, please don't tell Mr. Vincent this but this is how I feel about him. And then begins to tell this investigator how she feels about me. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, everything inside of me right now wants to justify me in the context of this situation, right? But I can't because she doesn't even know I'm in the room, right? It, it was at that point where I'm reminded, man, I trust myself to the one who judges justly, who makes all things right. In the context of this passage, I think we can see that we trust the one who judges justly. Number two, pray and do not lose heart. Luke 18, one, Jesus tells us that. Why? Because the bowls of prayer in Revelation 5.8 have become the bowls of justice here. Once again, we see that connection. The bowls of prayer, man, they're now emptied from the prayers and the bowls of wrath are about to be poured out in response to the saints' prayers. We won't take time to do this because of the shortage of time, but I wanted to encourage you to read Psalm chapter 145. Maybe you can do that this week as a family. Psalm chapter 145 is a great psalm, which probably ties in good with our family worship questions just as a way to remind ourselves, number one, what are the good things God did today that we can give him praise for doing? I mean, this can be done every single day. Like I said, God always does marvelous and great things. What are the good, great things that he did today that we're so, we're so, tended, we're so tend, are, are mindful to forget? What are the good things that God did today that we can praise him for? Number two, what are some things that did not go as we planned that we can praise him for controlling in spite of our plans? At the end of the day, you ought to be able to list off things that God did that was good and praise him for it. You ought to be able to also look back and say, here's how my day did not go like I wanted it to go. And be able to be reminded too that God remained in control despite that and is working those things for your good as well.
All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the truths that are clearly revealed to us here. Still a lot of question marks about what all is going on in this chapter. But God, we're thankful that you have preserved us and you will continue to preserve your people through trials and temptations so that we endure to the very end. We thank you that you give us so many reasons to worship you, so many reasons to glory in you. God, I pray that we would share that message with others. Your, your deeds are wonderful, and Scripture tells us where to tell others about those wonderful deeds. You've revealed yourself, and we, we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the reasons to worship you. God, I pray that we would continually trust in you who judges justly. Father, help us to pray anxiously for Jesus to come back. We long for that day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, we won't sing this morning, but I did want to kind of share something with you. Um, in our leadership retreat back in January, we were talking about um, a specific need in our church that kind of fell under the, the function of a deacon. Um, as Ben has continued to labor with our finances and budget, we want to, to continue to provide the support that he needs and to give him um, just additional help in the area of our finances. And so um, began to really pray and talk and discuss about um, who could potentially do that. Um, and it was pretty unanimous amongst the elders and the, and the deacons at, the, at that leadership retreat um, that we wanted to reach out to Bobby Conaway about potentially serving in that capacity. Um, Bobby was kind of next up when we did that whole deacon nomination process two years ago. Um, he was right there on the cusp of being asked to be a deacon at that point. Um, we just didn't have a job for him to do at that time. And so we discussed with Bobby that in the very near future, we anticipated him becoming a deacon, um, and we looked forward to that, and we would be in communication with him about that um, as soon as that came, came to fruition and we needed that. Um, and we feel like that time has come now. And so I wanted to kind of explain to you, so normally the process would be for you to nominate people as we need deacons, and then we would present those people to you. It's kind of a unique situation in that we know exactly what we need this person to do, and based on Bobby's background, I feel like he is absolutely the one uh, that provides the best support to Ben in this capacity. So we're kind of skipping over that process of asking for additional nominations, given the fact that Bobby really should have been asked to be a deacon when we did this two years ago. He just wasn't needed from a job capacity standpoint at that time. We do want to honor what we communicated to you about this process in that we want to present Bobby and his wife to you um, and then give you opportunity to pray about them becoming, or Bobby becoming a deacon in our church, uh, pray about any type of concerns or issues you might have, and bringing those to the elders over the next two weeks. We want to affirm Bobby and Yvonne in serving in this capacity in two weeks, Bobby being the, the next deacon to kind of roll in and, and help support the function of this church. So I'm going to ask them to come down just so we can see who they are for those that are visiting. So they're going to come down front. This is an extremely special family to me. Um, God's been so gracious in bringing them to our church several years ago, and they jumped right in, and to the point that, I mean, it really feels like they've been with us since the very beginning a lot of times, and they have been so hospitable with their house. I mean, now they have kind of become the place where we go for Easter celebrations and fall fellowship celebrations and have continually opened up their home for C group opportunities and um, just really thankful that God has brought them to us with all of their giftings and abilities. And um, so want to kind of affirm them to you guys from the leadership standpoint that we believe they're fully capable of functioning in this capacity. Bobby coming alongside our other deacons um, to really provide additional support, particularly in the area of finances. Um, but we do want you to be in prayer about that as well so that we can all affirm that together. Um, so for the next two weeks, we encourage you, if you have any concerns, to come talk with Bobby and Yvonne about that, um, to share those with the elders if need be so that we can work through those. Um, Bobby's gone through um, an evaluation process with the elders um, even after that prayerful support that we had at our leadership retreat. Um, had great conversation with him, and we're just really excited about what we believe God has in store for their family, kind of stepping up into this capacity and taking on a new role for us. So I'm going to pray for that process in closing us out today. God, we do thank you for this family and for bringing them to us and for all they've meant to us over the years and just the investment they've made into this church. And God, we thank you for the giftings and abilities that you've bestowed upon Bobby, um, just the ways that he has faithfully led his family. Um, as an example to everyone in this church. And, and God, we, we desire to see him used in a greater capacity um, as he continues to, to do so many of the things that he's already done. God, we want to give him some specific, specific tasks 
for him to help accomplish. And God, I pray that you would um, just affirm that in all of our hearts, if that's your desire as well. Um, God, I pray that you would put a special uh, protection around his family, um, because God, we know that he becomes more visible to the enemy um, by taking on this type of role. I pray for his children, that you would guard and protect them, and um, for his wife, God, that you would have your hand upon her as well, and that you would um, use this family in, in newer ways, in, in fresher ways within our church by, by taking on this, this responsibility. Again, Father, we thank you for them, and uh, God, we look forward to how you're going to use them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.